Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. I'm Hamish Johnston, and this week I'm in conversation with two physicists who argue that undergraduate physics degrees need to be revamped to give graduates a broader and more relevant set of skills. And I also look at what's new on the Physics World website. But first, a word from our sponsor. Join the leaders in energy, sensor, electrochemistry, and solid-state science research and technology by submitting an abstract for the 244th ECS meeting being held in Gothenburg, Sweden, October 8th through to the 12th. ECS meetings are catalysts for advancing research and offer individuals from all career stages an opportunity to present and get involved. The abstract submission deadline is April 7th, 2023. ECS encourages you to submit an abstract and join us in accelerating science. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 244 to learn more. The conventional wisdom is that university graduates who studied physics will thrive in high-tech companies because they've acquired a unique combination of high-level scientific knowledge, numeracy, and problem-solving skills. But is that enough to flourish in work environments where skills not normally taught to physicists, such as effective communication, teamworking, and creativity, are also highly valued? In an article in Physics World, Veronica Benson, Andrew Mizumori Hurst, and Bill Wakeham explain why physics degrees should be revamped to give graduates a broader set of skills. To explore what a physics degree of the future could look like, I'm joined from the University of York by Andrew, who is director of the White Rose Industrial Physics Academy and from the University of Southampton by Bill, who is chair of the Southeast Physics Network. Hi, Bill and Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So, Bill, what inspired you and your colleagues to write this article? Well, the Southeast Physics Network has existed since 2008 with a mission that began uh, to uh, deal with the problem of physics departments closing in the southeast of England and falling undergraduate numbers. And we were funded to try and fix that problem. And one of the main strands of our activity was the employability of physics graduates. Although you say they enjoy high employment rates, uh, that wasn't true for all of them. And obviously, uh, undergraduates coming in were not convinced about that opportunity. Uh, so after about five or six years, we learned of the existence of uh, the White Rose Industrial Physics Academy, and we got together to organize a couple of sessions over two years, three years on employability as a main theme and involved the Institute of Physics who were thinking about their accreditation process. Uh, 
we had just reached um, some conclusions about what we needed to do when the COVID pandemic hit, everything changed. And we began a whole series of online uh, seminars uh, to which, of course, many more people could engage than were engaging normally. And out of those online sessions, about five in, in a year, uh, a whole bunch of topics emerged that were relevant to employability, so important to SEPNET, but certainly very important to physics graduates. And what we do in the article and, and why we wanted to do it was we felt everybody should be exposed to the same sorts of ideas we were thinking about. Um, although we know uh, perhaps not all physics departments have the same problems, they all have similar uh, difficulties. And especially during COVID, of course, the modes of teaching changed, had to change, and very quickly. Uh, so some of our exploration was what was working out of that. Some of the things were working, some weren't. Um, and that inspired us then to put this article together to, to explain expose it to more people, I guess. And Andrew, in the article, um, you, you pose five questions uh, that you say must be considered when creating the physics degree of the future. And I, I thought those questions were really intriguing. So let, let's go through them in the podcast. Well, one of the questions is, how do we account for students' different learning styles? So Andrew, how would um, a, a physics course of the future take that into consideration? I, I think what was clear from the, the webinars that we, we ran in collaboration with the Southeast Physics ne Network was when the pandemic hit, university physics departments pivoted to 100% virtual teaching and learning. And so that allowed teaching and learning to be delivered at scale and it allowed it to be delivered virtually. However, there was a concern, and this was raised in one of our webinars, around the level of student engagement and the level of student interactivity with the physics educator and also the academic content. And so as the pandemic uh, progressed, how teaching and learning evolved was then towards more of a, a hybrid learning model. And so this introduced a novelty which probably pre-pandemic uh, either happened in a sporadic way or probably wouldn't have been considered as viable. And so in that case, universities then began to think about how they could introduce on-campus activities, such as face-to-face -face socially distanced laboratory classes, which would then be complemented by uh, virtual lectures. And so the, the level of engagement and that interactivity increased as different approaches to teaching and learning was introduced. And at least uh, what I've observed, and again, what was discussed in the webinars, was there's been an extra evolutionary step whereby the hybrid learning has then progressed to blended learning. And so what seems to be more prevalent now is students attend face-to-face -face lectures, and then the academic content is then complemented through web-based tools whether that's through interactive presentations on WooClap or students answering questionnaires or quizzes through Mentimeter. And so I think what has happened probably through necessity is that 
the university physics degree has evolved, introducing these different approaches, which now um, resonates with different students who have different learning styles. And so I think the interest going ahead is whether university physics departments and probably all departments will persist with the blended learning and will develop expertise in that direction. And so I'm beginning to see how the next step from blended learning may introduce elements of virtual reality and augmented reality. So, Bill, uh, another question that you posed uh, in the article is, how do we teach students to tackle open-ended and unfamiliar problems? So, um, I suppose, possibly problems that, uh, that don't have anything to do with physics in the workplace. Yeah. Um, so, l- let me begin uh, by just saying that traditional ways of teaching, well, all sciences, not just physics, are through lectures, one on hundreds, let's say. Very, very efficient, uh, not necessarily very effective, but confined always to one topic, uh, might be optics or something like that. Um, And that leads to a kind of siloed approach where a student knows they're going to be tested on that stuff in optics. That's what they learn. They don't think outside of it. So you might find that students don't connect optics with anything else they do, and certainly with problems in a real world. Uh, They might not instantly think, for example, that might connect to healthcare in some way. Um, Now, one of our experiences during uh, all the discussions that we've had especially from industrialists, is that physics students are extremely able. They know physics backwards. Uh, They can solve physics problems. But when they're asked to deal with a problem that doesn't look like physics, they struggle, especially if it's not a well-posed problem, as indeed in a real world, many problems aren't. Um, I suppose that's something of a surprise. But it means that probably they have all the knowledge, and indeed in the modern world with the internet available, perhaps more than knowledge than they need, but they don't know quite how to use it, uh, and especially across disciplines. So the best way of dealing with that, uh, we believe, and uh, most of our colleagues believe, is to provide open-ended problems that involve the physics they should be learning. Um, And either they can learn it themselves by necessity to solve the problem, or they can be told about many things at once and they have to put them together. Uh, That problem-based learning approach is pretty common uh, in other disciplines like engineering, It's also common in some universities outside the UK. Uh, I I know for one, uh, the um, university in in Singapore uses that approach exclusively as a means of teaching. Now, I don't think we advocate that, but problem-based learning has a very large part to pay in teaching the ability to work in groups, in teams to solve problems, and to think across disciplines and be creative. Um, and our employers often say that's what's lacking. So we think that might be a way forward in physics, 
which is, I won't say never used now, but seldom used. And again, the, um, the pandemic, in a way, generated the need to look at things that way, where students were finding out a lot more on their own, online, and then interacting with their fellows rather than interacting with the teacher. It would mean a profound change for staff because, uh, well, my own experience of problem-based learning and open-ended questions is the questions asked by students push the tutor. Uh, they put you in a place that's a little uncomfortable. Uh, so you'd need to have some staff support to try and deal with that. Um, and that's quite difficult to ask staff to do that instantly. And the, the pandemic rather illustrated that not everybody was comfortable with the shift to a different mode of teaching and probably wouldn't be. But in terms of the outcome, in terms of uh, the ability of students to work in a, uh, a way that perhaps the industrial world does work, uh, it would be very helpful to introduce much more of that. I was just going to add that um, when you look across how the higher education landscape is changing, you're beginning to see how um, newly formed uh, seats of learning uh, are tackling this problem. And so I became aware, actually, of, for example, the Zero One founder School of Coding in London and the University Academy 92 in Manchester, their teaching and learning is purely centred on project-based learning within a group-based environment. And in the case of the University Academy 92, they actually don't have any final year closed book exams. And so in this case, these two relatively new institutions uh, are working closely with uh, industry to come into these institutions, pose technical industrial problems, and then groups of students are working in a project-based way to provide technical solutions for the employers. And so you can begin to see how the students are not only applying their academic knowledge, but then are also gaining um, a broader range of professional or translational skills, which employers are telling us they require for their business. So whether it's higher level skills related to analytical thinking, creativity, uh, personal resilience, influence and persuasion, um, employers are, are keen for students to be able to apply that knowledge. Um, and But it's also interesting to note, and this came up in, in the webinars, is that the employers are also saying um, that the academic rigour of the programme shouldn't be, in their words, dumbed down. And so employers are still wanting an academically rigorous physics degree, but they're also wanting the students to have um, the experience and skills with which to apply that knowledge. Uh, my my daughter did a, a science degree, or at least half of a science degree, during the pandemic. And, and one thing that she was really frustrated about is that she didn't get at any time in the lab. Um, you know, she was working at home and um, she, she, she thinks that she really missed out on, on gaining lab skills. Now, in your article, you look at whether technology can, can replace or um, at least part of that, you know, sort of hands-on lab experience. What, um, what do you think there, Andrew? 
So certainly, um, I think there's a strong case for using technology to, to enhance the laboratory classes. So for example, we heard of examples where pre-lab preparation is conducted online. So that could, um, that what, what might that look like? So that could be students completing assi uh, assignments, looking at guidance notes. Uh, it can touch on health and safety requirements for, for the laboratory or for particular experiments. And so then when the students go into the laboratory, they have a higher level of preparedness and they have a clearer view of what the experiment entails. Now, I think that's important because potentially that leaves room within the allocated time for that face-to-face -face laboratory class, possibly more group-based interaction and more social learning within that peer group. And so I, I can see that working very well. Um, from the discussions we had at the other end of that spectrum is how the Open University approaches virtual labs through their Open STEM labs. And, and so it seems to work very well for the Open University in that they give access in real time for their students to access data, instrumentation, experimentation, where they can conduct a whole range of experiments from astronomy through to electronics, through to materials and mechanical engineering. And so for the Open University, they've created uh, a vibrant virtual working environment that works. And I think that um, works well for the Open University, but I don't believe um, other universities will go down that route for fully virtual laboratories. And Bill, do you have any thoughts on uh, on technology and labs? Well, um, I think there's the the possibility with a virtual uh, laboratory um, that you can, uh, let's say, fail. The experiment can go wrong, and you can have the opportunity to fix it, try again. Now, in the finite fixed time allocated to a physical laboratory, that is kind of difficult. Um, doesn't mean they don't fail, but it means the student gets nothing from it uh, often. So I think there's an opportunity to enhance the experience of a practical laboratory um, with technology for that kind of reason. I do think, though, uh, we wouldn't advocate, I'm sure, that you go all the way because some hands-on experience really does matter. And and what about diversity, Andrew? Um, I know that um, that UK universities uh, really struggle to um, to attract women, for example, into uh, into physics courses. Um, how how would you uh, address the the issue of diversity, which is of course very important for employers um, in a in the university of the future? So I, I think there are interrelated pieces of the jigsaw and this is quite a complex challenge for particularly university physics departments where i've seen ev uh, evidence of best practice so for example um, at the university of hull within their degree programs um, for the academic year 2022 their, their gender balance is approximately 50 50 and so 
that's brilliant and it's also quite surprising because unfortunately that's uh, an outlier across the, the physics HE landscape. And so what they do at Hull is that they, they introduce um, primary school and secondary school children to what, what they say and what are uh, relatable role models. And so the, this is current undergraduates studying physics who uh, are either female undergraduates or maybe undergraduates from socioeconomic uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. And they go into the schools to um, reflect what life is like within an undergraduate physics department, how the physics relates to the real world. And so to begin to enthuse the, the hopefully the future physicists around a physics degree is for me. So someone like me can do a physics degree like the presenter who's, who's at the front of the room, um, in front of the classroom. And I think there's also a role within um, outreach activities is probably to have um, um, conversations with parents because I think also there's probably um, stereotypes and maybe misconceived ideas around who can be a physicist and where a physics degree can lead you in terms of career paths. Um, and so I, I think in terms of attracting um, a more diverse range of students into physics, I think those were two very good um, pieces of best practice that Hull have introduced. And Bill, um, employers, um, you, you, I think both of you have mentioned already, are very keen on on students having a very high quality education. How how can the university of the future assess students on their ability to master challenges and apply their knowledge? Well, I think one of the things we can do is make sure that students have mastered the fundamentals of their subject and of interacting across subjects. Uh, the word mastery is used often uh, to describe a depth of knowledge, not just uh, some knowledge. And the depth of knowledge matters if you want to apply a topic across a range of things where it doesn't obviously connect. Now, examining that, assessing that, is quite difficult. Um, in some cases, you might want to insist that you have a pass mark of 80% in some fundamental part of physics, um, or uh, indeed it may not be so fundamental, but vital in that it's all pervasive. Um, in a final year examination, I think what we would like to see is much more use of open-ended questions open book examinations, for example, which don't test students' knowledge, they test their ability to use it. That would be a powerful tool. It's sometimes used already, of course, but more use of it would be useful. I think um, the consequence of that is the design of questions becomes very different than it is uh, for a closed book examination. Um, and that's hard work. So uh, people would need to relearn how to how to pose such questions. And then the final thing is continuous assessment through a whole series of mechanisms, uh, such as uh, reflective uh, notebooks kept by the students, um, instant tests, and things of that kind. 
all of which uh, can help to embed uh, the learning inside students. And Andrew, you uh, you work at a university um, and, and you teach. Um, what's your feeling on how uh, receptive UK universities are to change, to, to modifying their curricula um, to, to, to produce, let's say, more well-rounded graduates? Are, are, they, are they on board or, or, or are, are they sort of stuck in the past? <laughs> That's probably not the best way to put it, but... So, uh, so, uh, so I, I believe that um, un- universities um, are keen to change how uh, teaching and learning is delivered. Uh, and, and this is reflected actually in the, in the, the revised Institute of Physics uh, accreditation framework, which was released in 2022. And so here is um, w- within the framework um, is, is an ask by the Institute of Physics for um, graduate skills to have greater prominence within the physics degree, whilst also delivering an academically rigorous course. And so that actually provides a very nice opportunity for university physics departments to pause and think about how they can redesign their teaching, their learning, their uh, assessment processes, how work-based learning can be built into degree programs in an equitable way, um, how employers can interact with the degree program uh, with greater frequency, and, and also how we can introduce um, speaking to equality, diversity and inclusivity, how we can introduce role modelling for, for our students, whether that's through um, near-peer mentors, whether that's through uh, early career alumni. Um, I think all, the, all these things matter. So I do believe uh, university physics departments are, uh, are keen to um, um, apply the, the new IOP accreditation framework. Well, that's great. Um, uh, I suppose I look forward to, uh, you know, sort of seeing the results of that. Um, uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Andrew and Bill. And you can find that article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Building a Physics Degree for the Future, Five Key Questions We Need to Answer. There's much more about education on the Physics World website, and you can find it in the careers section. New this week is a piece by the trainee teacher and physics graduate Ellie Whitehall, who explains how her interest in physics, outreach, and mentoring shaped her choice to become a teacher. Whitehall started university in 2019, so she spent 18 months of her degree under COVID restrictions. Undeterred, Whitehall volunteered at the Coronavirus Tutoring Initiative, a scheme that paired secondary school and university students for one-to-one online tutoring. She planned and taught physics sessions and discovered that she really enjoyed teaching. You can read more about Whitehall's journey from secondary school student to trainee physics teacher on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Leveling Up, From Student Mentor to Trainee Physics Teacher. 
Also new on the website, our industry columnist James McKenzie explains why the energy sector should be excited about solar concentrators. These use lenses, or curved mirrors, to concentrate sunlight. When photovoltaics were expensive and less efficient, concentrators were seen as a way to make better use of available resources. But they've since fallen out of favor because of the development of low-cost, higher-efficiency solar panels. But in his latest column, Mackenzie discusses another use of concentrators, focusing intense light onto a heat-retaining liquid that is then used to boil water to drive a turbine and generate electricity. An important feature of such systems is that heat can be stored in the liquid and extracted overnight or when the sun isn't shining, providing a stability that is often absent from renewable energy sources. You can read more about the technology and the economics of solar concentrators in his column, Why You Should Concentrate on This Form of Solar Power. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. Thanks to Andrew Mizumori-Hurst and Bill Wakem for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester meets Charity Woodrum, an astrophysicist whose childhood dream of working for NASA was nearly derailed by a personal tragedy. Currently studying for a doctorate in galaxy quenching at the University of Arizona using data from the James Webb Space Telescope, her story is the subject of the film Space, Hope, and Charity. That's directed by Sandy Cummings, who also joins Glester in the podcast. That episode of stories is called Finding Solace in the Stars and can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.